But uh, today, being that it's still January and that we are still in uh, just the start of our new year, uh, one of the things that I, I figured I would do is uh, let's let's. I wanted to start off this year um, by speaking about prayer, and so that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to this morning. Um, the title of my message is very simple. It's in everything, prayer. And in order to do this, we're going to be looking at a passage in the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, you can go to Philippians chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 7. Philippians chapter 4, uh, verses 4 through 7. All right. And let's go ahead and start by reading that passage this morning. So Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 begins. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts, your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we once again, we thank you for this day, Lord, in which your mercies are once again new for us today. Lord, we've come here to hear from you. We've come here to uh, have communion with you. We've come here, Lord, to be in your presence and to be in the presence of your saints. And so, Lord God, um, may this time be completely directed towards you. Uh, keep us free of distraction, Lord God. Um, use your word to conform us into the image of your son, Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray for myself, Lord, that you would use me in this time as, a, as a, an instrument in your hands, Lord God, to proclaim your truth and only your truth. Allow me not to speak anything that would be of me, but completely of you. And so we thank you, Father, for the, uh, uh, just for the ability to gather and worship. We thank you for this day and for this time, and it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 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 So before we get into the message, I think it's always important to lay out um, some of the context of uh, what the, the, the passage that we're looking at. And so uh, I think it's no different in this passage, though I've already said there's a topic for today's sermon. The, uh, uh, nevertheless, the context for the passage is still very relevant for us before we dive in. And so a couple of things about uh, the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians, or the letter to the church in Philippi, was actually penned by the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul is writing from prison, where he's awaiting possibly even his execution. Um, and he's writing to this church located in Macedonia. And he's writing, and this church is uh, uh, very important for a few different reasons. Number one, Paul is responsible for planting this church. Uh, he planted it somewhere around the, uh, uh, his early second missionary journey. And so, so to the, the people in this church, he's sort of their spiritual father. They had a lot of love for Paul, a lot of respect for Paul. Uh, it's also important that we're, the, the location of this church, it was uh, in largely Gentile territory. It's like I said, in Macedonia. But uh, the, the church itself was made up of both Romans and Greeks, so mainly a Gentile or non-Jewish Church is what we're uh, uh, looking at here. Um, and the reason for the Romans that were present there is because 
this uh, Philippi was seen as sort of um, uh, a retirement place for, uh, for, for Roman soldiers. It's where they would kind of go after they served their duty. Uh, and in addition to this, being uh, the presence of the, the Roman soldiers, it was also a heavily fortified city. Um, and, and because it was so heavily fortified, if you lived in Philippi in that time, you had a sort of a, a sense of peace about where you lived. You weren't necessarily worried about outsiders coming and attacking you or, or trying to take advantage of you. And all of these things are important because um, of what Paul says in our text today. Um, so when Paul is writing, he's writing because of a few different reasons, but two of them are, he tells us earlier in the letter that the church was undergoing some suffering. Uh, there was some outside uh, um, pressure that was being placed on them. I, I would use the word persecution, but um, in this sense, uh, it wasn't physical, um, at, at least not yet. It was probably heading in that direction, but, but there, was, there, there, there was this pushback against them. Um, so he's writing in one sense to encourage them to persevere through their suffering and through their persecution. But another reason is the church, because Paul was their spiritual father, they were extremely concerned about his well-being. They knew he was in prison. They knew that they might never see him again. And so they sent one of their own, a man named Epaphroditus, I think is how you pronounce it. Uh, they sent him uh, with an offering for him and with a message that they cared for him and that they were praying for him. And so now he's also writing to encourage them, to let them know uh, uh, ultimately that, that for him to, to, to live as Christ and to die is gain. And so uh, with these things in mind, Paul writes in chapters 1 through 3 um, several exhortations and godly examples of perseverance. And then we get to chapter 4. And when we get to chapter 4, this is already Paul beginning to wrap up his letter. And in doing so, he begins with this command. This command, which we've read today. Now, I've had the opportunity over the last few weeks uh, to have several conversations with Pastor John, um, and he's shared a lot of this church's story with me. And what I've gathered um, from what he's shared is that in the last 10 years at least, you guys have been through a lot. Amen. You guys have been through a lot. You've seen a lot of change for you, so much so that for some of you, your head is probably still spinning, right? Um, and, and yet at the same time, I think it is a testament to the faithfulness of God, the grace of God, that yet here you stand. Here you are, continuing to worship, continuing to move forward, despite all the circumstances and everything that you have been through. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. And so what I want to encourage you with is the same thing that Paul is encouraging us with in this letter. In everything, pray. You've been through all this, but yet in everything, continue to pray. And we see that right in verse 6, where Paul's command is uh, um, in everything by prayer. So rooted right there. That's kind of a central theme for this text. But he gives us three important principles about prayer that I want to walk us through and spend the rest of our time looking at today. And these three principles, what we see in this text are this. First, he shows us the attitude of prayer. We see that in verses 4 and 5. Then he shows us the content of prayer. We'll look at that in verse 6. And then lastly, he shows us the result of prayer, which we see in verse 7. So he shows us, again, we have the attitude of prayer, the content of prayer, and the result of prayer. 
prayer. And so we're going to be a church that in everything we pray, in everything we seek God, that has to begin by looking at first the attitude of prayer. What is the way in which we come before the throne of grace? You know, I think uh, this is one of the most important um, uh, lessons in this text. And, and for several reasons, but one of those reasons is if we're honest, how much attention do we really pay to our attitude when approaching the throne of grace? How much do we really pay attention to where our hearts are set before we come into the presence of God? For many of us, if we're honest, prayer has become a, a check in the box for our spiritual disciplines of the day. Where we can say, yeah, I prayed today. For others, prayer often sounds like a whining session, right? Where we're saying, God, please just help me get out of this. God, please stop this. God, please do that. But what we see in this text is something very, very different. And I know for some, there are some that, that seem like they were just made for prayer. And if that's you, praise the Lord for people like that. But I can honestly say that I'm not one of them. But what this text reveals is so important. And the very first thing that we see when it comes to the attitude of prayer, what Paul shows us is that our attitude is supposed to be one of rejoicing. That before we come into the presence of God to, to lift our voices to him, to have communion with him, that we are to be rejoicing. Paul says right there, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, I say again, rejoice, always. Think of the context. This is why we went through that. We're, Paul's talking to this church in Philippi in the midst of suffering. By the way, more suffering is to come. But they're in the midst of suffering. They're, they're, they're worried about what's happening there in their own city as well as what's about to possibly happen to their own spiritual father. Paul is in prison. In prison. And the first thing he says before he gets to the prayer is rejoice. That before they pray, they have to start by rejoicing. And, and then it's not just when we pray. But Paul says, always rejoice. So, yeah, you're going to suffer for Christ. Yes, he is currently suffering for Christ. But none of this is ever an excuse for us not to be full of joy. One commentator reminds us that the reason for this is because joy derives from a conviction that despite our present circumstances, God is always in control. And God will save those who belong to Christ. See, that, that God is sovereign, that he is over all things. He knows exactly what it is we're going through. He has a purpose for that which we are going through. But not only is he, is he sovereign, but he also provides for his people. He takes care of his people. He has provided for us in his son, Jesus. He has met our greatest need that we would be reconciled to him. And it is because of this that when we face an uncertain future, when we face difficult circumstances, whether we are in times of plenty, whether we are in times where we are going absolutely without, we can still always begin the same way with an attitude of rejoicing. 
Why? Because it has to do with who God is. It has to do with the fact that God, in His grace, has saved a wretch like me and a wretch like you. It has nothing to do with our present circumstances. So here's a question for all of us. Have you ever rejoiced in the Lord? Who would say yes? I would say yes. And so here's another question. Then why don't you do it always? Because here's the thing. We rejoice in the Lord. That means we've come to understand who the Lord is. And because the Lord is never changing, because the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever, there is never a time for us to be not rejoicing. The Lord has not changed. If you can rejoice in the Lord today, you can rejoice in Him tomorrow, you can rejoice in Him six months from now, a year from now, or on your deathbed as we sang today. Bless the Lord, O my soul. But unfortunately, what happens is rejoicing becomes a part of rejoicing in what the Lord has done for me lately, rather than rejoicing in the Lord. I can remember as a young Christian, I was on fire for the Lord. I don't know if uh, uh, I've, I've spoken with many Christians who've had a similar experience in the beginning when, when the Lord first rescues you and you just can't stop talking about him, right? Um, and, and you really, and it's like you pray and then God answers your prayers like the next day, right? It, it, it's like everything you do is just completely devoted to him and, and, and you're just so in love with him. And for that first year, it felt like I was unstoppable. And then about a year in to that adventure. Um, I, I had orders, I was in the military at the time, I had orders to come back to New York, and the morning that I was supposed to execute my orders, they were canceled. Canceled. And I remember in that moment, I didn't have a spirit of rejoicing. In fact, immediately, what crept up were all my old habits. What crept, the, the, the first thought to my mind was, to plan a sinful weekend where I was going to drown away all my sorrows. And then I had a friend who wasn't even a Christian who came up to me and he said, Hey, Ryan, I'm all good. We'll, I'll go with you. We'll go party. We'll, we'll go do this. I just got to ask you one question. So is this God that you've been so in love with for this last year, and this God that you haven't been able to stop talking about, it was all that fake? Was all that not true? Because if it's not, then absolutely, let's go. And just like that, the Lord broke them and revealed my own, the, the own wickedness that was still there in my heart. And I want to just share with you, that's the case with most of us, if we're honest, that we have those moments. And what Paul is reminding us here at this very beginning, that our attitude in prayer must always come back to rejoicing in Him, not because of what your experiences are, not because of what you have been through. And it's not that God doesn't care about that, but it's that our joy doesn't come from that. Our joy is always rooted in who God is, yes. not what He's done. And so, 
The first part of our attitude begins with rejoicing. Always. We are rejoicing. We are always reminding ourselves of who God is. We are always reminding ourselves that we worship a God who is great and who is able. But then Paul goes on to say, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. This is a really interesting phrase. And the reason is because what it means. What it actually means is this idea that someone has done you wrong and you have chosen not to seek vengeance against them. You have chosen not to retaliate. That's, that's what reasonableness means in this context. That the idea is someone's hurt you or someone's pushing up against you or someone's saying things about you, but instead of doing what comes natural, which is say something back, hurt them back, do something back, you do nothing. You take it. Remember the context. These people were being done wrong. They, they, they were being persecuted. They were suffering, all for the sake of Christ, all for good reason. And Paul is telling them, no, 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 don't retaliate, don't seek vengeance, but rather let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. We are to expect persecution as we seek to honor Christ. And you see, the thing is that though the world may turn on us, what we know is that we are never to turn on Christ and we are never to turn on the world. But instead, the church is supposed to be a place that continues to serve the world, that continues to love the world. But the way in which we do that is not by just telling the world what they want to hear. See, there's a reason why the church is persecuted. There's a reason why the church suffers. And it's for speaking truth. It's for the proclamation of the gospel itself, which is an actual offense to the world. And so the way in which we love them is to continue to do that which brought us persecution and suffering in the first place. And what Paul is telling the church is let your reasonableness be made known. Don't seek vengeance, but rather stand firm in truth. Continue to do that which brought you the pain and suffering. And Paul is speaking from a position of, uh, uh, where, where he's experiencing exactly the same thing which he knows they may experience as well. And for Paul, it was worth it. It is worth it. And he is in a position where he can say, continue to let your reasonableness be made known. You know, another thing about this, it's important for us to recognize that sometimes as a church, our own reasonableness or our own vengeance can sometimes be cloaked as piety. And here's what I mean by that. Let's say a church faces persecution from the outside world. And then they decide, you know what? We'll just shut our doors. We just won't go out into the world. We've tried. We've, we've been in the community. They don't want to hear our message. Fine. Let them all go to hell. It almost sounds justified, doesn't it? It almost sounds righteous. But that's exactly the kind of uh, uh, vengeance, that's exactly the kind of uh, uh, revenge that Paul is, is speaking against. No, you can't do that. It's not ours to make judgment over the world, but rather it's ours to preach the message that brings salvation to the world. And so we, as a church, Regardless of what's going on in our community and who's pushing up against us, who's, who's calling us names, who's trying to tell us that we're, uh, uh, who's speaking lies about us, our job is not to just close our doors and say, we stop, we're done, we're not going to bother with you anymore. As if somehow we are the ones who choose who is saved and who is not. But rather we continue to love them. 
Rather, we continue to serve them. We continue to bring that same message which has rescued you and me to those who persecute, to those who suffer. And Paul can say this because he, is the, he was the greatest persecutor of the church that ever existed up until that point. Paul was responsible for, for countless Christians being uh, uh, tortured and even killed. He was there when the first martyr, Stephen, was killed and stoned to death. And he's saying... You need to continue to love them. Let your reasonableness be made known. You see, the thing about vengeance, the scripture is very clear. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. I want to make a quick side note before we jump to this last section here. I am not saying we can't physically defend ourselves. I want to be careful there. Um, and that's, we'll save it for another sermon. That's not the same thing. That's not what we're talking about here, right? But rather, it's about letting our reasonableness. So they speak words. They, they, if they come, even if they start taking us away to prison, we continue to preach the gospel. Amen? Amen. But then Paul says, the root of this reasonableness, the reason you can be reasonable in the first place is that the Lord is near the Lord is at hand. And there are two meanings by this. Two things that, that, that Paul is getting at. Because the Lord is at hand in two specific ways. And Paul mentions them in this letter. First in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Paul is reminding the church there in Philippi that their citizenship is in heaven. That when Christ returns, that he will transform us from our current state into a glorified state. That when he comes, all the present sufferings of this world will be completely over. That all our stress, all our difficulties, all our hardships, every single trial will all seem worth it as we are reunited forever for eternity with our Savior. Amen. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is coming for his bride. Do you believe that? Because if we believe that, then we can let our reasonableness be made known. We don't need vengeance because God is coming. But secondly, what Paul is pointing to is, is the idea of, of the closeness of Christ with us right now. The fact that, that the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead indwells every single person who has repented and placed their faith in Christ. That that, that same spirit lives in us right now. Just a few verses later in verse 9, Paul will confirm this as he says that the God of peace is with us. This means that no matter how difficult things feel, this means that no matter how stressful things get, that God is right there with us. That he's not merely just watching, like on a screen, seeing what you're going through, but rather he's leading you through it. Do you know why you get through the trials? Because God is with you. That he is leading us, that he is giving us the very strength we need to persevere. That even in our weakness, that in fact it is in our weakness, that the power of God is made perfect. This is the attitude that we have to come to prayer with. One of rejoicing and one of reasonableness. One which completely focus and absorb with the very presence, the nearness of God. As we look ahead to wherever it is that God is leading us, let us not let, it, let us not allow ourselves to get distracted. 
Let us not be taken up with the things that are going on in this world that, that, that want to take us away from Christ, but rather allow us to focus on him. Let us remember that he has saved us, that he is always holy. Let us have love for those who revile us, those who speak harshly against us, remembering that they too, they too are image bearers of God, that they too are in need of the same grace that saved you and I. And let us focus on the very truth that the Lord is with us and that he will return for us. And with this attitude in everything, pray. In everything, pray. Amen? Amen. And Paul doesn't leave it simply there, but he also tells us the content of our prayers. We see this in verse 6. He begins verse 6, be anxious for nothing but in everything. The root word for anxious means to be pulled apart. It is the very image of tension, uh, 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 of things being pulled from two different ends going in two separate direct directions. Anxiety has the uh, uh, ability to pull us apart, doesn't it? That's what we mean when we say, I'm stressed out. I've got no more room to go. Any second, I'm going to burst. It can cause us to let go of that which is most important while getting sucked in to that which we have no control over. Because if the truth is, the truth is, most of the time, our anxiety is over that which we can't control. Getting, I'm late to work and all this traffic, right? You can't do nothing about the traffic. You can't move the cards out the way. You can't turn time back, right? For the Philippians, it was Paul's circumstances that was causing them to be pulled apart. It was their circumstances as they faced that persecution that was causing the anxiety. They have no control over what the outside world does, but yet they were consumed by it. They were obsessing over it. And Paul says, do not allow that. That the counter to, to, to being anxious is in everything, and he says, Everything, everything in Greek means everything. All things. That's, that's it. That's, that's what it means. Right? And then this is important because you and I often don't think God wants to hear everything. You and I often think, in fact, the opposite, that God doesn't need, he's not worried with that. He's not worried about that. He's not concerned with that. I've got that. I don't, I don't need to pray about getting to work this morning. I don't need to pray about, you know, uh, whether dinner's going to be on the table when I get home or whether there's food in the fridge. I don't need to pray about waking up tomorrow morning. I, I'm going to wake up. It's just, it's just assumed, right? But yet, our very Lord, Jesus, when he teaches his disciples to pray, what, what, what is the very first petition that he says to pray? Give us this day our daily bread. It doesn't get more basic than that, does it? If Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread, how much more do we need to pray for everything else which is on top of that? And that's what Paul is saying, that the content of our prayers needs to be filled with everything. There is no situation that is too small nor too big that should not be brought before God. <laughs> and then he continues, so in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. The words prayer and supplication are very similar uh, um, they, have, they have a sim similar range of meaning, but they are different. So first, prayer. There's an actual definite article in the original Greek, so the, uh, a more literal translation should be the prayer. And what Paul is referring to there are more formal type prayers. I would say in our context, that's probably like reciting the Lord's Prayer. 
Some of you maybe even come from more, a, a more liturgical background where you had actual prayers that you learned and that you, you memorized. Those are good things. They're not bad things as long as the theology is right. That's good. The Jews had certain prayers that they memorized, that they said at certain times of the day. And that's the prayer, our formal prayers, is what Paul is referring to by that statement. But then the idea of supplication. This was more of a, an intense, heartfelt plea. Right? This is like, picture getting on your knees and crying out to God. That's, what's, that's the message that is conveyed by supplication. And here, we, we can, if, if we want a picture of this, think of the Psalms. Here, here's a couple. Think of like Psalm, uh, Psalm 18. Here's what it says. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. That's a supplication. That's a supplication. We have also Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God, uh, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. It is a heartfelt, intense plea from a very place, uh, 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 the very center of man, from your gut thing. And we aren't waiting for God to answer our prayers, to say thank you, but rather it's in our prayers that as we pray and as we make our supplications, we are also doing this with thanksgiving. This is really important. It's very, very important because we are thanking God, and as we're thanking him, we're being reminded that God is good regardless of the answer to your prayers. Regardless of whether he says yes, no, maybe so, wait, whatever it is, the God is still God. God is still good. It's a response that says whatever the outcome, knowing that our lives are in his hands, that that is all that matters, that with God's perfect knowledge, he always does that which is right. He always does that which is best for us and also according to his purpose and his glory. And so we can give thanks. We don't need to wait for a response. But we also give thanks for what God has already provided for us. What he's already given us in and through his son, Jesus. How much has God done? How much has God done for us by saving people who could never save themselves? That is worth thanksgiving every moment of every day. When we pray in this way, it takes our mind off of what we think we need and back to who God is and what God has already provided. Amen? Amen. And then Paul says to let our requests be made known to God. See, the thing about this, and, and, and it's funny that the way Paul puts this in there, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Um, for the Jew, this was a, 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 a bit of a... a, a a non-starter. They, they didn't think of prayer necessarily in that way. Again, they had these formal prayers. They had the Psalms for their crying out. But the idea of just coming into the presence of God, just coming before God and letting him know what your requests are, that was kind of foreign. But the thing about this is we are told repeatedly in Scripture to do the very same thing. Paul tells us other times that we are to pray without ceasing. Right? And, and, and the idea here is not that God doesn't know what your requests are. Because God knows. God knows what you need, and God knows what you desire. And if we're honest, often those two things don't really line up, do they? 
But God knows. But the question is, do you even know? The, the, the question is, do, do, do you know what you, you want, uh, uh, what, what you're requesting for God, what it is you're asking for him, from him? And it's because it's not for his sake, but it is for our own. That we would raise our voices in, 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 in response to God and, and asking him for, for anything, for everything. This is the content of our prayers. What are we seeking for God? Uh, what are we seeking from God? What are we seeking for God to do? What are we seeking for him to do in our homes? What are we seeking for him to do in our families? What are we seeking for him to do in this church, in this community? What are we seeking for him to do in Central Iceland and beyond? What are our requests? We if we're not voicing them, if we're not making them known, chances are we really don't know what we want. But whatever those requests are, we must Bring them before him. As a church, we need to seek for God. What is, it, what, what, is it, what is it that we are going to seek God for in this community? What are we going to seek God for in Central Iceland, in Long Island, in New York, in the world? Because every church has a part to play with the broader kingdom of God as well. We make our requests known to him, showing how much we trust him. It shows that we recognize that he is, in fact, Control that God is able to provide abundantly more than anything we can ever ask or imagine. If we want to see how much we trust God, all we need to do is take a look at how many requests we bring before God. If you want to see how much we trust God, take a look at how many requests we bring before God. I think often when it comes to these prayers, supplications, we're probably good with that. I grew up in a, a, um, a, a Catholic home, nominally Catholic. We were really good at saying the Our Father almost every night before bed. I think some of us are even good at supplications, at crying out to God. You know, especially when things go completely crazy in our lives. We can stop and just say, Lord, help me. But how are we at trusting in him enough to make all our requests known to him? See, I, I struggled with PTSD from my time in Iraq and Afghanistan. And for a long time, I saw this as uh, almost a punishment, I thought. I, 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 I would cry out to God to take it away. When we're talking about anxiety, I know anxiety. I know anxiety from riding the train in a crowded train and, and worrying and wondering what, what, what's happening, trying to figure people out. Who's going to attack me? Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? Yeah, yeah. I know what it was like not to want to even leave, not, not to want to go out because of what might be out there. <clears throat> I would get anxiety from crowded rooms, from being stuck in traffic. It would cause me to, to, it would prevent me from doing certain things. It caused me at times to even lash out at my own family. But it wasn't until I started to truly begin to understand this verse that I began to see a bit of a difference. It wasn't until I began to just pray on the subway 
And it would just be a simple request, like, Lord, please just give me peace. Lord, please just help me to, to trust you that you'll get me where it is that I have to go to. Lord, help me to believe that this bridge isn't just going to collapse from under me. And the more and more I began to do this, the more I realized that and began to see my PTSD as a gift and not as a punishment. Because the truth is, I know how hard-headed I also am. And apart from that, I don't know if I would make my request known to God. Take it from me. It's only in making our request known to him that we see how much we truly trust him. And my encouragement to all of us today would be to let every single request be made known. Amen? Amen. And the thing about this is when we do this, when we bring everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, when we let all our requests be made known to him, God will give us the results. God brings the results every time. And Paul shares what those results are in verse 7. And he says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. I love this phrase. Let's be honest. The last thing we expect in times of hardship in times of difficulty and struggle and suffering, the last thing we expect is peace. No one expects peace, but our God is a God who can bring peace even in the midst of those difficulties, even in the middle of our trials, even in the middle of your most difficult seasons. If we are bringing these things before him, he will give us his peace. Notice Paul does not say, and God will grant your requests. It's not there. It's not in the text. Paul does not say, and God's going to give you everything that you want. And God's going to give you health, wealth, make all things better, and everything will just go away. That's not the response that God gives. The response is peace. His peace. That's what God gives. That's what he offers us in response to our prayers. And here's the thing about it. His peace is what we need. God is not concerned with us getting what we want because the truth is often what we want is what will kill us. What we want is what will destroy us. What we want is what will take us away from him. Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful and desperately sick above all things. And so the point of prayer is not always in getting what we want. Do, do we get it sometimes? Yes, but it's only because it's according to God's will and what God knows we need and need to have in that moment. But rather he gives us his peace, his peace, because it's only in his peace, it's only with that peace that we can begin to seek him, that we can actually hear from him, that we can look to his word and be led by him. I can remember a few years ago, uh, my wife and I were looking for a house in Staten Island. We were living at the time in a studio apartment, and it was my wife, myself, two of our girls at the time, and our dog in a studio apartment. We desperately wanted out of that studio apartment. So we began to look for a house, and lo and behold, we found one, and we were praying, and we believed that this was a gift from the Lord. A friend of ours was offering this home. And I began to realize some things when it came to the financial aspect and whether we would actually be able to afford it or not. And so I began to pray. And a funny thing happened. We had peace in saying no. 
We wanted the house. We wanted out of this situation. We had everything we needed to get into the house. All we needed to do was say yes. But God gave us peace to say no. And it was probably one of the best decisions we ever made. His peace, that's what he gives us. And his peace serves a very specific purpose. It guards our hearts and minds. The language here, hearts and minds, is a very specific meaning in the Jewish context. It's a reference to the very center of man, the very center of the will, the source of the will. It's, it's the actual place in, 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 in Jewish literature, in Jewish understanding of uh, the source of where, where we make our very decisions from, uh, where, where it is, how it is we exercise our very wisdom. The language of guarding here is also very intentional. I already shared the context. Paul understands the, the, the situation for Philippi. They understand what it means to be guarded and have a peace that comes from that. Right? Um, and this is what Paul is telling us, that this is what God provides. This same sense of peace where he's protecting you. He is guarding your hearts and minds, just like those soldiers are guarding that city and watching over that city. And as he does so, he is guarding our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. See, this is what it all ultimately comes down to. We start by rejoicing in the Lord always. Then the Lord is at hand, so be reasonable. And now our hearts and minds are guarded in Christ Jesus. If you're here today and you are not a Christian, I'm going to say something that may shock you. I'm going to say something right now that you may even be offended by, but believe me when I tell you I say this from a place of love. If you are not a Christian, God does not hear your prayers. If you are not a Christian, God does not answer your prayers. God is not obligated to provide you peace. But what the Word of God tells us, and it tells us very, very clearly, is that the world is currently under the very wrath of God, facing judgment for the fact that we have sinned against the Holy God, that we've rebelled against Him. God does not answer the prayers of rebellious sinners. And the good news is this, though. I was a sinner, too. I am a sinner. And I, am, I was a rebel, too. But, but God has saved me. Not because of anything in me, not because I'm better than anyone, not because of anything in you, not because you're better than anyone or worse than anyone, but because he is that gracious, that he has offered forgiveness to all who will repent, all who will turn from their sins and trust in his son, Jesus, who came and lived a sinless and perfect life to be the very last and perfect sacrifice that all who would believe in him would have all their sins, the very stain of sin, that which actually makes us repulsive to a holy God, have all of that washed away and be made completely new in and through his son. And so if you are not a Christian today, God will hear your prayers if you repent and trust in Jesus. And my call to you today would be repent. Believe on him. Today is the day of salvation. Amen? Amen. You do not want to leave here today still alienated from the God who did so much that we would have eternal life and be united with him, though we don't deserve anything. Repent and believe in him today. That you too 
would not be anxious for anything, but in all things, by prayer and supplication, can make your request be made known to God, that his peace, which surpasses all understanding, which makes absolutely no sense, would also guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. I'm going to wrap up. With all that is known, or unknown, I should say, about our future, what is known is that God in the person of the Son is the head of this church. But it's not any man, it's not any organization led by man, but Jesus, who is the head of this church. And that if we as a church are going to remain led by Christ, then we must be a church that in everything prays. In everything we pray. We must be a church that is marked with an attitude of rejoicing, or an attitude of unity that, that allows our reasonableness to be made known, who is prayerful about everything that we do that brings every single situation and circumstance before God. A church that's not afraid to cry out to God when there are difficult and trying circumstances. We must be a church that does that, 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 that is marked by His peace. His peace, which will guide us in all wisdom as we continue to move forward into 2020 and beyond. Amen? Amen.